A quick note that this episode deals with mental ill health and addiction. If this brings anything up for you, you can speak with someone right now at Lifeline on 13 11 14. There I was afraid and damaged and lost in the wilderness and clueless. And instead of going for help or reaching out, I started acting out even more. And along with that came this, you know, party behaviour. Um, and I created an alter ego who was a confident, brash, promiscuous, outrageous, risk-taking party girl. So that's who I became um, because she was untouchable. Hello and welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories about rural and regional women across Australia. I'm Emily Herbert and I'm your host for this episode. Alcohol is considered by many the social lubricant of rural life. We knock off with a beer, celebrate and commiserate with a bevy, and mix a drink with every event, from the footy final to the country races. We often think of alcoholism as swigging out of a brown paper bag in broad daylight, but there's an insidious reality that is far more common than we realise, that of a high-functioning professional who looks and sounds like us but reaches for the bottle behind closed doors. Shanna Wand was one of these people. The CEO and founder of registered charity, Sober in the Country, Shan is now a national face for advocacy. She's fit, healthy and happy, But six years ago, life looked a lot different. Living in Narrabri with her husband Tim and her blue heeler flea bag, she moved to Australia from Zimbabwe when she was just six years old, her family fleeing from civil unrest. You know, when you think about their story and my dad's story is extraordinary he um he landed in australia with two toddlers 200 bucks and started life as a manual laborer in his mid-30s new country new town new everything extraordinary fella um yeah so we were essentially refugees from a war-torn area and um hence australia pretty bloody glad he did that too i bet you are and we're glad that he did Mm. as well because we have you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you were raised as a, as a total bush rat, weren't you, out in the scrub? Yeah, the biggest bush rat ever. I loved it so much. Yeah, so home for us um, was in northwestern New South Wales. And, yep, my lifestyle was as a full-blown, feral, free-range country kid, like literally uh, barefoot, back of an old stock horse, didn't even have a bridle, you know, it was the old halter with bailing twine. <laughs> Um, rescuing creatures, buddy. I was just full-blown free range. It was just, oh, God, Em, I look back on my childhood now and I think we were so lucky. God, we were so lucky. So, yeah, I had a beautiful, beautiful childhood. I was, I was, just, I was just the happiest kid in the continent. I had my horses, chooks, dogs, um, and I just adventured. It was fabulous. And you were sent away to boarding school. What was that like for you? Well, I'm not going to lie, that's when it all pretty much went to shit. (laughs) I was a happy kid and then dot, 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 yeah. Mate, honestly, boarding school for me was not good. It was not a good fit. Um, I didn't, you know, you know how in this day and age kids are, kids have better social lives than any adult, right? They're always off at preschool. They're always off at kids groups, um, daycare. These little guys know how to socialise from the age dot. (laughs) Um, I had no social skills. I had the social skills of a peanut. Um, yeah, so landing in a boarding school environment for me was horrendous. Um, so I was terribly homesick um, and I just, I just didn't know how the world works, you know, and um, what I now understand is politics happen as soon as, as soon as you're in a group environment and I just didn't know how that all worked and I, I didn't fit and so, yeah, I was a misfit my whole way through school. It was yuck. So it must have felt so good when those, uh, that final school bell rang and you were out of there for good. Yeah, I actually remember it was the first time I'd openly rebelled against my mum. Um, I still remember we were lining up on the last day and she, 
oh, this is bad. This is, I'm not encouraging people to do this just for the record. But um, I remember she had bought um, flowers and chocolates for me to give to a particular matron <laughs> as we were checking out on that final day and I, and I just put my heels down and I said, no, this person has been nothing but awful to me for seven years. If you want to give those flowers and chocolates, you knock yourself out. But I refuse absolutely flatly to say thank you for the torment. And I just jacked up. I completely jacked up. And that was not really, that's actually truly against my nature. But it was funny. That's when rebellion started to really kick in for me. And yeah, I could not get out of there quickly enough. It was so different back then, Em. Like, we didn't have technology. We couldn't see our family. We were under lock and key and a suffocating set of regimented rules and regulations. It, it was just a, it was not a good time for a lot of kids actually. Yeah. So how did that rebellion or that, how did that rebellious streak continue and what did you do after school? So straight after school, um, because I felt institutionalised and trapped and caged in, I, um, I think I said this on Australian Story, I, I pinned my ears back and I bolted out those front gates. I was like, get out of my way. I, I was just, I was completely hell-bent on freedom. And the irony was because of this suffocating, restrictive environment that I'd been schooled in, I still had no skills. I still had no concept of how to manage boys or social situations or even parties or like we oh my god I had no idea like none so I did indeed take out uh sorry take off out of that front gate with me is pinned back um and I refused to go straight to a higher education at university or whatever I said no I'm taking a year off and again I, I defied my parents wishes there because they wanted me to go to uni immediately and I said I just can't I can't go to another institution and I took off and I decided I'd go pursue my ongoing mad passion with, you know, animals, livestock, horses, etc. Because um, the property I grew up on was not stock. It was cropping. So, and I knew I wanted to be around something equine, or bovine, <laughs> whatever. It had to have, you know, a heartbeat. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I took a job as a... Um, Jillaroo and I actually you'll appreciate this one Em I worked as a polo groom um yeah so I pursued horsey stuff in that year straight out of school yeah and you did suffer a major trauma as a young woman you know can you tell me a little bit about that time Mm. and how it affected you particularly in the long run yeah so imagine a a girl in full-blown rebellion, but really who's a goody two-shoes at heart. That's kind of what I was. Like, honestly, I had no vices. I was just, (laughs) oh, dear, I was just so friggin' naive. It's extraordinary. Anyway, um, I landed in um, several bad situations. And to cut a very long story short, in in my first year out of school, um, I was sexually assaulted on four separate occasions and I also was um, raped and lost my virginity to date rape on a remote property. Um, yeah, and so that that whole concept of taking off um, and being free in the great wild yonder pretty much turned out to be <laughs> going from one nightmare into another. So it was horrendous. It was, it was such a strange time because... I was doing what I wanted, but, um, yeah, this, this other uh, scenario was unfolding and, um, oh, I don't even know how to explain all of that, but yeah, so pretty much all went, um, downhill very, very quickly. So, yeah. It's just such a, a difficult thing to have to undergo at such a vulnerable age. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Did, how did you cope at mm. that time? Um, look, and, and honestly, Em, this is not an uncommon story. It's just not spoken about, as we know. Um, there's an extraordinarily brave woman taking this topic on, as you and I both know, young, beautiful Virginia Tapscott, another local girl. We'll be talking a lot about this in the coming months. Um, so it's not an unusual story. And how I coped is not unusual. Um, Firstly, because it was back, I mean, it's so funny to think how far we've come in 20 years in terms of society and what we do and don't tolerate. So back then, there was no internet, there was no help, there was no instant access to support or any of that. 
So I was isolated. I was ashamed. I did every classic thing a girl who's been assaulted, raped, etc., will do. Self-blame, uh, self-doubt, shame, guilt. And I thought, oh, well, I, I've asked for this. I've asked for this. I've done something to deserve all of these things. Um, so I better stick it out and suck it up because it's all my fault anyway. Um, all of those classic things were going on in my mind and I did try and stick it out. And what I started to do was hide behind alcohol in social situations because it was so readily available. Like rural life was just peppered with grog. It didn't matter where you go. Sorry, didn't matter where you were going or what you were doing. The common theme at every single thing from rugby to polo cross to polo to picnics to Friday after, like everything was grog focused. So it was very convenient. I quickly discovered that um, beer made me feel brave. So that's how I coped. It was the only, I had no other coping mechanisms whatsoever. Yeah. But at the time you were simply known as the life of the party. Yes. And again, very common story. Um, (laughs) It's so ironic. This is psychology 101, seriously. Um, There I was afraid and damaged and lost in the wilderness and clueless. And instead of going for help or reaching out, I started acting out even more. And along with that came this, you know, party behaviour. And I created an alter ego who was a confident, brash, promiscuous, outrageous, risk-taking party girl. So that's who I became um, because she was untouchable. And she didn't have feelings and you couldn't hurt them. Isn't it stupid? It's such a bloody cliche, seriously. But, um, yeah, that's I did all of those things that you read about everywhere. <laughs> mm. so, so I hid behind a smoke screen. Mm. So when did you realise that you did have a problem with booze? I reckon um, it wasn't until I was about 30. Alcohol did not even enter my lovely, beautiful, blessed childhood. It's funny, isn't it? You know, a lot of people think you've got to have experienced a, a, a childhood trauma, which I suppose in a way I did, if you still call 18, you know, childhood, I suppose in some ways it is, isn't it? Um, but, yeah, um, basically it would, it would escalate and gain momentum in my life um, and, and by the time I was 30, I knew there was an issue, but it took until I nearly was ready to take my own life and um, didn't even want to live anymore to realise that this thing had, had over a 20-year period gone from being a um, place to hide to being a full-blown chronic addiction that would take my life. Yeah, unbelievable. It is such an extraordinary thing because you were a professional countrywoman during the day. So you were a rural mm-hmm. journalist, a photographer involved mm-hmm. in agriculture and at night a raging alcoholic. How common is this high-functioning addiction in country areas? It is so common that it would, it would raise the hairs on the back of your neck if you only knew, if people only knew that this story, and, and you may have noticed, Emma, over the years, whether it was an Australian story or whenever I do a talk, I proceed every single thing with there is nothing unique about me. I am not special. I am not some pin-up girl for this thing. I just speak about it to help others. And the reason I'm always at pains to, to point that out is because I, this story is so horrifyingly common and, and I believe as a society we've done such a shocking job of normalising and glorifying alcohol and stigmatising someone who eventually falls through the cracks that we're perpetuating death in our own community. And it begins as that high-functioning professional. You know, it's, it's um, oh, goodness, I could tell you stories for days and days and days, but it's, it's extremely common <laughs> It's funny, Em, for six years I have spent day and night conversing from one end of Australia to another in this space. Not once have I had a conversation with whether it's an individual or a family that hasn't been impacted either directly or indirectly by alcohol addiction. Not once. Mm -hmm. This thing doesn't spare anybody, actually, but we just don't talk about it. What did your addiction look like? It looked like a girl who had a good haircut and a mortgage and a successful business and an education and a brain until five o'clock. 
And then it looked like someone who increasingly was isolating themselves themselves from social situations. So it's funny, I went from being very public party girl to withdrawing completely. And in the end, I was doing my heavy drinking at home under the cover of privacy because that's also precisely how alcoholism manifests because you, you start to realise you can no longer control your own behaviour or your own actions and you know deep in your darkest alcoholic heart that um, you can't stop once you start. So for me, the end stages were after five, going to the bottle shop, getting a few bottles of wine and I would sort of kid myself that I was stocking up but I would frequently get get through two bottles of wine and into a third bottle by myself. And I'd be, so I would have gone and done a full day photographing a family, being amazing, Shanna, who was vibrant, professional, loving, you know, working with kids, um, photographing families. Like I just loved it. I loved it so much. And then as the day would end, that hollow, lonely thing in my heart would kind of just kick into gear and in it, and I would start drinking. Um, and I would convince myself that I was just having a few wines while I edited photos. But, yeah, it progressed to the, the stage of basically blackout drinking repeatedly in my own home. Yeah, very, very common as well. So, But I, I was convinced that because I didn't um, drink until after 5 o'clock that I was fine. <laughs> Isn't that shocking? And what were your family and friends saying to you over this, gosh, more than a decade of getting blackout drunk? Well, because I was pretty clever and sneaky about what was going on, um, I, I kept the truth from a lot of people. So I started isolating and I tried to not let people see the depths of where this had been going. And, um, yeah, so I was, I was in denial and I was sort of manipulating and lying and hiding and deceiving and doing all the classic trademark addictive behaviours because I, I knew it was wrong. I knew I was in big trouble, but I was so addicted. I didn't want anybody to come and tell me what I knew I needed to hear but didn't want to hear and therefore they might interfere with this pattern of self-destruction. Um, anyone who dared to get too close to the truth, I would basically push them away um, or lie to them about how serious it had become. Um, yeah, so I, I was living a lie, basically, M. I was living a total and utter lie, um, telling everybody I was okay when I wasn't. Um, my mum or my dad would ring me in tears and say, we know you're not okay, and I would get offended and, and fire up and, you know, throw accusations at them. How would you know? What would you know? I was just, it, it turned me into somebody I simply wasn't, M. I was, I was really deceitful because I did not want anybody to get to the heart of it, you know. I was so deeply in the big black hole of addiction that anyone reaching out was just pushed away. And that just continued as a pattern until I nearly died. <laughs> and that's the nature of this thing. That's how it works, you know. It takes people and it destroys their lives. Adding to your heartbreak was through your 30s. You and your husband, Tim, were trying to start a family. You know, how did that cycle affect your drinking? Yeah, so um, in my 30s I knew I knew I was in trouble. So this is before that whole repetitive blackout cycle had begun. There was a bit in the middle there where I, I went and did intensive detoxing, health overhauls. This is when I first developed a real sincere passion for holistic health, which to this day is a critical part of my recovery. But <clears throat> at that stage, I hadn't yet come to the startlingly obvious realisation that I was a raging alcoholic. So I was still in masses of denial. And what I could do is I could go periods of months without drinking. And I knew I had to be healthy and well to conceive. And so I sort of went through this cycle of health kicks and trying really hard to get myself together. And there were several years there where it was so promising. Everything looked very promising. I was trying. Oh, my God, I was trying so hard. Um, but then we'd have a failure. And um, we were going through um, what they call IUI, which is assisted, you know, fertilisation, I suppose, a bit like AI in cattle. <laughs> Nothing very glamorous about it. Really expensive, really time-consuming, really stressful um, procedure and of course because we're rural you've got to travel a million miles and spend a million dollars and then you get a big fat no at the end of it and that happened I don't know I can't even remember now isn't it funny four or five times 
So each time those cycles ended in a negative, my self-hate, my self-blame, my guilt, my shame just escalated exponentially. And um, every time I would see my husband holding one of our beautiful, um, oh, God, every time I talk about this, it makes me so emotional. Um, yeah, every time I would see um, Timbo um, lifting up one of our little nieces or nephews um, and cuddling them, um, and he had a lot of pain in his eyes. He's such a good guy, though. He never blamed me. But, yeah, I blamed myself. And so I think, um, in all honesty, Em, that was the straw that really broke the camel's back for me um, because I've only ever wanted to be a mum. It was really something I so um, dearly wanted to be. I just love kids and kids love me and it's just such a natural fit. It was just heartbreaking. And um, after that sort of all, we gave up on that eventually. But what happened is I slipped into such a destructive level of um, not only did I have shame and guilt and self-hate, but a real bitterness and an anger crept in because I kept thinking back to my past and I kept thinking what had been taken from me as an 18-year-old woman and how in the end that had culminated in my uh, you know, my whole downfall and, and, I, and I started to get trapped in the old pity party and the, the cycle of poor me, poor me, poor me, another drink, you know. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression but that's how I justified my destruction. Um, I became so angry. I was so angry, so sad and that just was the final descent into, into a place I, I nearly didn't make it back from. So, yeah, that was a bloody... That was a horrific, horrific time of life. It was just awful because you're watching every single person in your rural community get their homes, have their families, put their white picket fences up, righty, righty, right, and you are still all these decades on the person on the edge. It's just, oh, God, it's the most awful feeling of not belonging and not having a purpose. Yeah, so that was really tough. Mm. It was a very tough time. What was rock bottom for you? <laughs> so rock bottom was, yeah, so we'd given up on, you know, starting a family and I had continued going back to work, pursuing my photography, working longer hours. So I was by this stage half a workaholic, half an alcoholic. <laughs> um, and eventually um, it, it just it just got worse and worse. And, and for those who don't know, that's the nature of alcoholism. It, um, it's a progressive uh, and ultimately fatal disease if it's left untreated and unchecked. And it's exactly what was happening to me. It just went, it went from one level to another, to another, to another. And uh, in towards my 40, uh, sorry, yeah, when I was approaching about 40, I realised I was basically constantly contemplating suicide. I was in that shocking place where you don't want to live, but you don't want to die. You're just living hell. You're just living hell. You sort of can still pick yourself up. You can still kind of go to work. You can still kind of present as normal, but you're the most tormented soul in the planet. And um, rock bottom was basically another mysterious drinking accident, which was me falling down a flight of concrete stairs and coming to an emergency with a heap of strangers standing over my bed. And I just went, oh, God, what now? Yeah, and I had a massive hole between my eyes that they'd stitched up. By the grace of God, there was an amazing surgeon on hand who was able to stitch me up without leaving me looking like Frankenstein. Um, yeah, and Timbo took me home and tucked me into bed. And I'll never, ever, ever forget um, that we were, I was sitting there and I was waiting for this poor, beautiful, broken man to say, how could you, why did you? the usual questions that a person who doesn't understand this disease would ask. And instead of that, I still remember so clearly he leaned over and he just tucked a bit of hair behind my ear and he said, sweetheart, he said, you can't even help this. You can't even stop it, can you? And that was it. I just fell. I just broke into a million pieces then and there because I finally realised I was going to die. I finally realised I couldn't help it. I was completely out of control and that I was a fully hopeless, helpless, raging alcoholic and I was going to die. I was going to die young. And I knew it with all the certainty in the world that if I didn't take action, 
I would die. And I realised there was a little part of me that still wanted to fight. So I fought, I fought one last time and, yeah, I thank God to this day for rock bottom. It's a really cliched, corny-sounding line, but I'm so, I'm so glad that happened because I think I would have killed myself by accident um, pursuing the insanity of, of the fact that I was not an alcoholic. Honestly, it's the most shocking, shocking disease. Yeah, so I'm very, very grateful that that happened. Today's episode of Life on the Land is brought to you by Blundstone Australia. The iconic boot brand is celebrating its 150th anniversary in 2020, an incredible landmark in the brand's history. 2020 sees the mark 150 years of making the sturdiest, most comfortable and stylish boots for all walks of life. Established in Tasmania in 1870, Blundstone remains 100% family-owned and Tasmanian-based and continues to be shaped by the vision and values of its founders and owners. For 150 years, their commitment to durability, style and quality has not changed. The Blundstone range includes safety and casual styles for men and women and kids' boots that are easy to pull on and off when on the farm. Blundstone tested by every generation since 1870. What were your first steps to recovery? As old as the hills, my love, um, basically the first critical, critical thing was me acknowledging I had a problem, admitting the truth to myself. It came down to being no more and no less complicated than that. Um, the day I stopped kidding myself that I was okay was the day it all changed. And then here's, here's another raging, fabulous cliche for me. I wish it, I wish it was a scene in a movie. (laughs) It was basically standing up at a, at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and declaring in front of a group of strangers that I wasn't okay. I literally, I drove three hours to go and visit a, um, a recovery support meeting and, um, I listened to the stories of all these other people and I never knew I was one of many. Now I know I'm one of flipping endless tens of thousands, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I'd never seen other people in action like this. I didn't know it existed. And I, I connected, I identified, I resonated with all of these stories. And when someone invited me to share, if I was comfortable it was hilarious. I stood up out of that chair and I just went bleh and I completely, <laughs> I just let it all out then and there. It was really weird. I describe it to people as, you know, it's the old narrow road versus the wide road. You know, you've got two choices here and this will determine the rest of your life, what you do now. And everything in me wanted to say, no, thanks. I don't want to uh, contribute. I'm not as bad as all you, blah, blah, blah. You know, my ego and my denial was hovering in the background and I just pushed it aside and I just stood up and I said, um, it was so funny. It's just like you see in the movies. Hi, my name's Shanna. And I burst out laughing and I said, uh, yeah, so um, I'm totally an alcoholic. <laughs> and I started laughing and I said, I can't believe I've not been able to ever say that because holy shit, how much more proof do you need? And I just started laughing somewhat hysterically, but also with a lot of relief. And I said, I'm, I'm completely done with lying. I'm completely done with pretending I'm okay. Um, I need help. I really, really need some help. And that was the pivoting moment. For, for That was just everything changed from that point onwards because um, I went from being in denial, deception, et cetera, et cetera, to being open, to being willing, to being prepared to do whatever it took to get out alive and so I got to work and I spoke to as many people as I could get my mitts on who were successfully alcohol free and I just worked my little bum off. I took a year, I took a year out of my life. I stopped photographing, I stopped travelling, I stopped everything. I took all of the advice that I could get from experienced people who were long-term, you know, sober and I, and I listened and I opened my ears and I called myself out on my own bullshit and I went to work and I just, I turned into a mega nerd. I spent like 12 months studying full-time how to be sober in the country, basically. Yeah, I made it my priority over everything, including friends, family, you name it. 
it was like this happens first, everything else is second. And that's how I did it, yeah. Uh, along the road of your recovery, you tried to start an AA meeting in Narrabri. Why wasn't that successful? Well, my darling, as I now know, <laughs> yeah, because I knew, I knew and I really buy into the philosophy that one of the most extraordinary things you can do to help yourself get well is to help others. I love that. It makes so much sense. And today it's still what I do, seven hours a day. And people suggested to me that, well, if there's nothing in your district for people like you, why don't you start something? And I went, oh, yeah, it's a great idea. So I did that. And I spent a couple of years baking scones and opening a hall and sitting there waiting like a massive nerd with gleeful anticipation, you know, to, to wait for someone to walk through the door so I could say, hey, you're not alone, you know. But um, long story short is what I now understand is that anonymous recovery meetings are a fabulous idea if, in fact, you can be anonymous. However, in a small country town, that ain't possible. <laughs> there is no such thing as anonymity. Um, and eventually after two years, I just shut shop and gave up because I was heartbroken and it was so clear that nothing would change there. Um, and the people, occasionally someone would see me down the street and be brave enough to say, oh, Shan, I, I probably should be coming along to those support meetings of yours. But people know my vehicle. They know that the meetings at that church on this day at that time, I just can't do it, mate. I can't have people knowing. And I was like, God, of course, no one's going to walk in the door. I mean, we can't help them if we can't get them through the door. Mm. And so that was the entire foundation for shifting gears and, and doing it differently. Mm. And what did doing it differently look like for you? A lot of people had um, said to me that, you know, yeah, just keep, keep your cards close to your chest. Don't say too much. Just... Um, you know, this isn't a public thing, righty rah, which I now understand was really great advice because in early recovery from addiction, you really just need to focus on your, your own wellness. You know, you just got to lock down, hunker down, stick your head down and your bum up and do the work. But several years in, I knew I was going to make it. I knew that actually from the first day. I did, but I was never going to say that to anyone because the whole world was waiting for me to fail. And understandably so, I'd given them no reason to trust anything I said, you know, so I just did, I did keep it all pretty quiet and, and steady and I just poked along and, but in the end I went, right, so here I am, aged 41, <laughs> can't have kids, uh, don't know what the hell I'm going to do with my life, I've got a good 40 years left, hopefully, on this earth, God willing, <laughs> um, what are my skills? And I thought about it and I was like, right, so I'm a journalist, I'm a speaker, um, I've got contacts all over Australia and I just, I remember sitting down and mapping out what my skills were and I, in the end it just hit me like a, it hit me like a sledgehammer. Just, just use your voice, just speak truth, just speak truth, just use it. Because I thought about it M, and I was like, what in, what in, uh, what on earth do I have to lose at this point? <laughs> this whole town knows I was an alcoholic. I don't care anyway what they think anymore. Like I let all of that go. It was fabulous. Letting go of what people thought of me was one of the most liberating things of my entire life. And I stopped pretending and I just got real and I just got honest. And I started ever so tentatively just sharing snippets of this and that and the other. And it really all began there. So really it was a Facebook page where I just shared a few thoughts around health, around not drinking, around benefits of it. I studied and graduated as a holistic health coach at one point. So from Shanna, the nearly dead raging alcoholic, to Shanna, the CEO of what is today a national charity, was a very messy, wiggly, windy road of six years of attempts, failures, knockbacks, friggin' endless endless refining and, you know, whatever. But, yeah, it essentially began with me just speaking truth. And I just kept at it. I kept at it and at it and at it. And the response was very swiftly, please say more, please do more. Oh, my God, my friend, sister, me, somebody needs to hear that. Please don't stop. This is so important. And it just kind of took off. Yeah, just truth. That's all it is, just speaking. Mm. Who is sober in the country for? <clears throat> so sober in the country, it began, as I said, as a conversation today. It's a charity. But it is for the overlooked demographic of hardworking rural men and women all over Australia 
who basically get up and show up through drought, flood, fire, <laughs> whatever, and go and do their day's work. And they're the people who, when they stick their hand up and acknowledge they're not okay and they might need a hand, they can't get it. They can't go anywhere. They don't qualify for support. They don't qualify for help. And they get dismissed by society as even needing a hand because they look like Emily or they look like Shanna or they look like someone with good hair and a, and a decent vehicle and a mortgage. And people go, oh, you're right. You can't be that bad. So it's for... It's for a really, really severely overlooked portion of our society, those high-functioning men and women who are doing what needs to be done but under cover of night, they're not okay and they don't know how to speak about that, where to go, what to do, how to even begin their journey. So it, it is for people like me. I am my target demographic because nobody, nobody looks at people who appear to be okay. Nobody. Everyone is so busy focused on the bottom end of the spectrum of addictions at rehab, hospitalisation, emergency, crisis, etc. And as you know, my very favourite quote in the whole world from Desmond Tutu summarises our mission, which is there comes a time when we've got to stop going and pulling people out of the river when they've already drowned. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. That is what Sober in the Country does. That is who we are there for. We're there for the people falling in who can still be pulled out. What, what sort of kickback did you get from uh, more traditional <coughs> recovery groups when you were launching mm. Sober in the Country? Um, I got roasted. Um, a lot of them came after me. I got a lot of flack, a lot of hate. But thankfully, I knew to expect it. And I knew people would never, never, um, would not take the time to investigate the fact that I was not the enemy. And I sort of had things and strategies prepared. So let's say, for instance, an old school person who was all for traditional recovery models would reach out and attack me. I'd say, hey, you might want to just take a moment and read the blog I wrote about why I started this. I'm not against recovery support models. I think they're fabulous. But what happens when people can't be anonymous? What are your suggestions there? I'm doing this because that was not effective. So, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah, and it was interesting. The... Um, after initial waves of backlash, you know what's fascinating to this day is that this stupid pandemic has, has forced the entire globe to go online. I've actually now had a heap of these old school traditionalists come back to me, apologise and ask me to speak at events and they have said, I'm so sorry, we got this so wrong. We did not even have a clue of how horrific it is to overcome addiction in total isolation. And now we understand it because we're all in ISO. We finally get it. And I'm like, it's all good. Thank you. Let's work together. It's all I've ever wanted. I'm not here to compete. I'm not here to reinvent the wheel. It's funny. One of my favourite lines, Em, is that um, I'm not here to reinvent the wheel. I'm here to recalibrate it for bush conditions. And what we've traditionally done does not work out here. It's as simple as that. Um, yeah, so it's really cool. It, it was a very, very... What's the word, Miss Journalist? It was a good feeling <laughs> when, um, <laughs> when these guys came back around me. You know, it all came full circle. Mm. It was amazing. COVID-19 has been such a kick in the teeth for addiction and isolation. What's your view on its flow-on effect, and, and uh, namely bottle shops being named an essential service? Ah, oh, you know, this is my favourite topic. It's basically a passive acknowledgement from our very own national leaders that Australia is an alcoholic. <laughs> I don't want to beat around the bush there because there's no point. So the very reason bottle shops became an essential service is because, and, and I don't think as far as I know, very happily cor correct me if I'm wrong, if anyone knows differently, but I don't think a leader or a politician or a health professional has ever stood in the public arena and said, the reason we have had to make in bottle shops and essential service is that if we didn't, the entire country would go mad and there'd be outright civil war from all of the drinkers saying, how dare you, followed closely by all of the undiagnosed, untreated alcoholics all through our society would be crashing emergency healthcare systems because they'd be going into acute withdrawals, not to mention escalations in domestic violence and all sorts of things. As If I had a chance to sit down with Scott Morrison or Greg Hunt or any of those blokes, I would say to them point blank, 
you poor things, you would have been damned if you did and damned if you didn't. There's no, there's no easy way through this. Um, and I think what they did was probably actually pretty sensible because you don't just shut down the supply of grog in Australia without there being horrific, horrific consequences. I just wish with all my heart that they had used the opportunity when that happened to speak the truth as to the why. Why are we doing this? I'll tell you why, guys, because we have got a bloody massive problem in this country and we're not talking about it. Well, COVID has been really full on for you anyway because it was meant to, you have spent six years running your charity for free, total, totally for free. You've put thousands and thousands of volunteer hours into this. 2020, you were meant to go on this massive speaking tour, which was going to help keep the charity afloat, keep you afloat, put bread on your table. And obviously, mm. you know, that was, that totally fell through thanks to coronavirus. <laughs> what, what happened, you know, come April when all of your tours had been cancelled you know, and there was no light at the end of the tunnel for keeping your charity afloat in such turbulent times. What what did you do next? Well, yeah, gosh, what a what a how do you prepare for something like a pandemic, hey? Yes, yeah, so there I was in March twenty twenty, sitting at the Sydney Opera House with sobriety, royalty. I was at the peak, you know, the pinnacle of the launch pad of everything I'd spent six years working towards. I now had the credibility, the name, the recognition, the national traction um i was literally i I compare it to feeling like an olympian standing on a dive um platform ready to execute my dive and then someone going oi get off the get off the platform sheila the olympics have been canned like stiff biscuit too bad that you just spent six years training (laughs) (laughs) and honest to god yeah within a week of that fabulous um initial um part of my australian tour I was back home um, in my country town within a week and it was all over. It was all over. And I, I was in the fetal position, curled up on the, on the f- um, floor here in my lounge room with Fleabag, my ever-faithful blue healer, <laughs> and sobbing my heart out going, this, is, you can't, this can't be happening. This cannot be happening. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Because, yeah, as you said a minute ago, I was um, on the verge of looking at my first um, income in six years and any any sort of modest speaker fee that I would have been charging would have gone back into the charity to just progress a little bit. I just had small, very modest goals, but it was all gone. Anyway, um, then here's the good bit. A second miracle happened. Um, not one but two philanthropic organisations just came out of nowhere like angels with halos and wings and, and little musical notes and unicorns. <laughs> and uh, they, scooped, they scooped us up and, oh, my gosh, unbelievable. Um, two, two country sort of um, centric philanthropists basically said, hey, Shan, we've been watching you and what you're doing from afar for a long while. How has the virus impacted you? And, of course, I just burst into tears because... <laughs> There's no uh, pretense with me. Um, and I said, oh, it's wiped us out um, completely. Like, I don't even know what happens next. I didn't have a backup plan for a global pandemic. <laughs> and uh, long story short is we were given seed funding finally. And this is after having been through the process of being a rural woman of the year finalist, a regional woman of the year finalist, a volunteer of the year and all of these Fabulous certificates hanging on my wall, but zero traction, zero government support, um, zero financial assistance from anybody in health, um, despite, you know, endless attempts to, to do that. I don't know if you know the defin- definition of a philanthropist, but they're, they're basically people who are willing and prepared to take risks where government can't or won't. So they kind of get in there and do the hard yards when someone else is standing back because, oh, that's something we haven't seen before too reluctant to look at it, whatever. And these guys went, no, we need you to, we need you to be doing this more than ever. And they, they funded us. And so in the end, this hideous pandemic was a blessing. Who knew? Who knew that? And we've gained nothing but traction since March. Um, It's extraordinary, Em. And you have just launched an online platform called Bush Tribe. Tell me about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, 
What I've learned in the last six years of talking about sobriety in country Australia is that it's precarious, it's treacherous, it's tricky, um, and you've got to be very bloody careful. Um, people are still very frightened of talking about their alcohol use, misuse or alcoholism, whatever you prefer to call it. People are still very, very frightened. So um, several years ago I opened a private Facebook page called Sober in the Country, just a peer support group that was private and closed and it just blew out to like nearly a 1,000 people in two years. Um, people who were rural, regional or remote with a shared wish to either cut back or quit drinking, that's all it was. But what I found was that Emily knew Shanna, who knew Adam, who knew Frank, who knew Joe, and all of a sudden all of these people separated by thousands of miles knew each other and then they'd go underground again because they were like, I don't feel comfortable speaking on that group anymore because I know this and that and the other people and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, crap, <laughs> the latest challenge rears, you know, rears its head. So ironically, we were experiencing this rapid growth, but, of course, anonymity was becoming an issue all over again, even online. So um, thanks to our philanthropic funding, I was able to spend lockdown just working for months and months and months on launching a secure platform that we've called the Bush Tribe. And it's basically a website that you can, it's a peer support online hub where you can log on and you you might be Shanna Wan, you might be Emily, but you can call yourself whatever the heck you need to. And you get in there and you join and you just have a yarn with other people all over rural Australia who are either cutting back or quitting alcohol. There are no expectations. There's nothing. It's just literally an online family support network for people who are in the same fight. And I think we launched it uh, in August and it's already got something like, I think we've already got 300 members taking part um, from every corner of Australia. Um, and it, I think we get something like six requests every day. And, and, and the thing, the, the commonality is that these are people who have, who have previously felt completely isolated not just geographically, but socially, because they're getting ostracised because they don't drink or they don't know what to do because they've quit drinking and they suddenly land in this beautiful space and suddenly they know they're not alone. So it goes all the way back to what the first step in me getting over my own addiction was, which was connecting with someone else. That's all it is. It's a great big fat extension of that same principle. We're just connecting people and they're hanging out in a non-judgmental, safe environment. And we've got disclaimers everywhere, of course, saying, guys, we're not the answer. We're not the medical experts here. We're just your peers. We are a cheer squad of people. And this is a place you can land and be free to be vulnerable, be who you are, and find your courage. This is your spot. This is your tribe. Mm. Six years ago, you thought you were heading for six feet under. How is life now? It's, um, you know, it's amazing. I, who, in, who in the planet would have ever dreamed that my greatest shame and pain and horror would end up becoming my life's work? But it's a story you hear, don't you? But it's always someone else, not yourself doing it. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I just feel very blessed. I feel very fortunate that I can take such a broken, imperfect life and use it as a conduit of truth speaking to help other people. I mean, what greater what greater gift could there be? I, you know, I'm such a I'm such a flawed, imperfect human, and I think that's the beauty of sober in the country as a charity or or any of us who speak publicly. Is no one's presenting as anything perfect. We're just being real and we're being raw, and that is changing lives because other people are being given permission to stand up and say, yeah, guess what? Me too. Me too. I, I think, I think that um, it's, it's, it's all worked together for the greater good. Uh, I feel so lucky. You know, it's not, some people think I lead a charmed life and it's all, <laughs> pardon the pun, beer and Skittles. <laughs> um, and it's certainly not. Life is still bloody hard. I've still got a long way to go. You know, you, you, we had to rebuild from ground zero. Um, and um, there are still some really massive hurdles and challenges, but, oh, man, I've never felt so blessed and so lucky. I just, I've found my calling and 
gives me a purpose and I reckon that's a lot of people don't know that and never find that so warts and all I'm very grateful for every shitty miserable thing that happened because it led to a point to be used for good and that's how good's that you know it's an amazing thing I feel really lucky and yeah Shan, as always, you're just a shot of inspiration to my day. Like I've had goosebumps throughout this chat on multiple occasions. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for your vulnerability, for your rawness, for for standing up and being a face, for giving others a platform. Uh, Just thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Em. And um, it's just a pleasure to be. I love the fact that there's some synchronicity with you and I chatting. It's pretty awesome. Thank you, beautiful girl. And thanks to Grazier. Love what you guys are doing. It's very, very cool. Thank you for tuning into this episode of this eight week series of Life on the Land Real Conversations with Regional and Rural Women. Shanna is such a force of nature. Her vulnerability is a powerful kickstarter to some tough conversations and her work is so important in the bush. We'll link to Shanna's Instagram and where you can find out more about Sober in the Country in our show notes so you can continue to follow along Shanna's journey and find out where you can support this amazing charity. We'd love to know where you're listening in from. Send us a picky of where you are or screenshot your app. It gives us such a buzz to see just how diverse the landscapes are that our community lives and thrives in. We'd also love it if you could continue to support us by sharing these podcasts with your mates and loved ones. Let's continue to give voice to women and their stories in the bush. You can find more gorgeous stories in our spring edition, which is on sale now in your local stockist, or you can gift a subscription to a friend at grazyherd.com.au. This is a Grazy Her podcast produced by Manson and Company.